How you doing, Eric? I'm good, Scott. How are you this evening? I'm doing okay. It's good to see you. We're talking about the podcast. It did happen here. Why don't you talk a little bit about your history with the Coalition for Human Dignity? Oh, goodness. That was a long, long time ago. Well, yeah, I was listening to the podcast and it was interesting to me, partly because I learned things about that period that I did not, in fact, know. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a kind of blind man and the elephant situation where parts of that story were known to me and parts of it weren't because the way that we were, you know, engaged in that fight against the far right back then, um, the public organizing and the research weren't always in the same space in order to be able to protect the integrity of each side. So, um, yeah, it was a kind of interesting, um, different path for me down memory lane. I... Um, got involved in the CHG, and I can't remember what year, it might have been 1989. Um, it, um, I wasn't the first one there. You know, I wasn't one of the people who showed up at those first meetings to create the organization. And um, I certainly wasn't the last one there. And I left years before the organization wound down. Um, I left in 1992 to go to work on, on the No on Nine campaign for a hate-free Oregon, a ballot measure campaign against the Oregon Citizens Alliance anti-LGBTQ amendment, and then went from there to working at the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force on a project called Fight the Right. But in the few years I was there, um, you know, I, um, it was, let's just say it was a rich experience. One of the um, fun things that happened to me during that time was that I met you. That's right. That's right. S Scott, you may not, uh, you may not recall this, um, but my first connection with the Coalition for Human Dignity, and we'll come back for those who are listening right now, uh, welcome. And Scott and I have just kind of hopped in mid-story, but we promise we're gonna come back and um, uh, uh, build a little bit around uh, what this was. Uh, but there was an entity called the Coalition for Human Dignity that existed in Portland uh, 30 years ago. And uh, Scott, my first uh, brush with the Coalition for Human Dignity was through you. So you and I had met already, um, I think, you know, through kind of uh, racial justice organizing in, in Oregon, right, as part of kind of the civil rights movement in, in the 90s. Um, you know, I was much more focused on uh, systemic inequality, right? And, uh, had been an anti-apartheid activist and still was at that point. But, but you gave me a call one day and I'll see if you remember this. And, and you said, Eric, there's a meeting in Eugene on collodial silver, right? And people are probably Googling right now to see what uh, collodial silver is. Um, and, um, you know, there's going to be some white supremacist at it, you said. We didn't distinguish between white nationalists and white supremacists then. And uh, you said, you know, do you think you can find someone who might be willing to attend the meeting, right? And, you know, this is a little check. I, you know, folks who are younger than me, I'm old now, so, you know, I get to say this now. But, you know, there was no internet then. Um, you couldn't Google anything. And uh, the way folks tried to understand this uh, very kind of brutal uh, white nationalist movement was uh, you, you actually had to attend meetings. You had to read their materials. You uh, had to listen to uh, their cassette tapes. 
to understand that. But uh, that's the first time I met you. And I think, you know, I said, oh, I'll, yeah, I'll find someone. But I think at the time I um, was saying that uh, because I knew you, right? I probably did not think it was the most important thing uh, that I should be doing with my time. Uh, that came to change. Um, uh, and it's interesting because I think about this moment now, you know, we had this insurrection uh, in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I don't know, you know, I don't know if folks have heard that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of soul searching right now around uh, hate groups and, you know, political violence. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, the fact is, though, as the country is pondering this question, uh, we were pondering this question three decades ago with folks throughout the Pacific Northwest. But Portland's story is uh, quite unique. And for those who are listening, I wonder if you might just spend a little time giving some of the background and uh, the conditions that created the Coalition for Human Dignity and the fight against white nationalism in the Pacific Northwest. I have to admit that I expected we would be involved in a more traditional um, interview situation, so I wasn't quite prepared to jump in. I think it might help the audience for us to give them some background, the background you're talking about, like why did this all happen? What's important I think to note is that um, what happened in the Northwest in the late 80s and early 90s and through the 90s really, um, was an extension of a long history of um, white supremacists and white nationalists um, organizing and um, terrorism in the United States. Um, but um, you know, what we experienced in that period of time was something distinct from what we had experienced for most of US history. Through most of US history, there have been white supremacist organizations that function kind of like gangs, like the KKK. Those groups though, were um, operating in a context of white supremacy, of codified white supremacy for much of that history. And so they were, um, in a sense, patriots. They were system supportive. They supported slavery. They supported Jim Crow. These were the law of the land in those periods of time. And, um, the, and even in the North, um, the fact that the country as a whole tolerated Jim Crow all the way into the 60s created a context in which their white supremacist agenda made sense as a kind of an all-American political movement. And, um, but in the 60s, with the passage of the 1964 and 65 Civil Rights Acts, um, the context changed. Um, they lost traction. Um, they needed to rebrand. They had um, really lost a lot of popular support and appeal through the 60s in the struggle of the civil rights movement when you know, the heroic themes of that movement helped to reframe the way people understood these issues of race. And, um, and their um, actual political agenda no longer made sense. They'd really lost at the federal level. And so the movement started to rebrand itself and get reorganized and move from their old white supremacist agenda to what we now know as white nationalism, which is a um, more of a revolutionary ideology rather than a system supportive one. And one that is um, that aims to basically create a white homeland in the United States, uh, white nationalism. And um, so it's an ideology of ethnic cleansing as opposed to ethnic su subjugation. And it makes it quite a bit more dangerous. And what happened there in that period of time in Portland that the podcast covers was um, one expression of that changing kind of uh, political context. So it's important to note that 
what happened was that as the um, old white supremacist movement found itself losing its place in the kind of American political context, that they decided to reorganize and reinvest in a new movement. And one of the places they targeted was the Northwest and especially Oregon, um, because of the very small number of people of color as a percentage of the population that lived in Oregon. Um, they um, called it by turns the Northwest Initiative or the 10% solution. And um, it was, uh, the notion was that we were ripe for colonization and that we could become a new um, white homeland. So the Aaron Haitians compound in Idaho, the movement that we saw in Oregon were all articulations of that. And um, they also wanted to rebrand and create a new um, a movement that uh, could capture the attention of younger people. And the neo-Nazi skinhead part of that organizing initiative was what resulted in 1988 in the murder of Molageta Seurat, who's an Ethiopian uh, immigrant in Portland who was killed by members of a group called Eastside White Pride. Um, three members of that group in particular um, in um, November of 1988. And that it was the event that led to the establishment of the Coalition for Human Dignity, which as I said, was an organization that was created um, before I got involved in it. And um, you know that uh, was led by a number of people throughout the community and um, really represented a kind of community-wide effort to address the fact that the city government, um, the local police, we're not substantively addressing the problem of organized white supremacist vigilante groups establishing themselves in the community. And um, the recognition on the part of people that in order to defeat them, they were gonna to have to do more than simply defeat uh, to uh, rely on law enforcement responses, but they'd have to defeat their ideology and win the hearts and minds of the people they were trying to recruit. So that was what led to this period of history that we're talking about. What do you think in, in terms of the, the conversation now, why is it so important? We, we had this, this very powerful podcast. Um, I hope folks uh, uh, get a chance to listen to it. I don't know if I can give plugs, but it's, um, it, did, it, it did happen here, podcast.com. Uh, you can listen to the episodes there and I'm sure there's, oh, look at that. That's so great. Um, and other places. Why is this important now? It's, it's 30 years later, um, folks seem to want to understand that period. Uh, give us some insight on, on, on why you think that is. Well, um, you know this as well as I do, Eric, but um, you know, I, well, I should say, first of all, that I consented to be part of this podcast and to come on tonight because I wanna talk about now, right? I'm not that interested in talking about the past. Um, that period that we went through in the past that's documented so well in that podcast, um, is um, something that looking back on it, you know, 2020 hindsight, it feels as if we made a lot of right moves and ended up um, playing a key role in defeating um, the neo-Nazi skinhead movement in Portland in particular, um, and exposing a lot of other kinds of white supremacists and white nationalist organizations around the state of Oregon. But um, the reality is that, um, you know, when we were in the moment at the time, it wasn't as if we knew how these stories would end. And so there were a lot of mistakes made and um, some happy accidents. And out of that process, um, you know, we um, got through that period of time and as the story is told, uh, defeated um, the neo-Nazi skinhead movement. I wouldn't say that we actually did that. I think um, that movement because of a broad community effort got pushed underground and um, the kind of street violence that we we're experiencing in that period of time got suppressed. The importance of all of that to now is that now at this juncture in history, we are facing the arising 
white nationalist movement that is a kind of contemporary expression of those old ideologies from that period of time um, that is um, bigger, more radical, um, more powerful, better organized, and more potentially violent than that old movement was. And, um, you know, back then we could uh, fight them in um, real life, IRL, as the kids say, you know, um, and um, that allowed us to be able to contain them to a certain extent. extent. We could anticipate where they were going to be and we could actually physically engage in um, organizing that would help to contain the impact that they could have. Um, that movement, though, is, um, has developed since that time a much more robust underground um, component, and that underground component also lives now on something that didn't exist back then to the public, which is the internet. And so in virtual, um, in virt that virtual context, they're accomplishing a lot. But just to give people a sense of where we are, there's a group called D Democracy that's based in Sweden, in Gothenburg, Sweden, at the University of Gothenburg, um, that tracks um, democracies around the world in order to test the health of democracy as an idea and in reality in terms of nations that are democratic. And what they say is that since for the first time since 2001, the majority of the world's nation, I think it might be 92 nations of the world, are autocratic. And a third of the world's people are now living in what they call autocratizing nations. And autocratizing is just kind of a $10 word for sliding to authoritarianism. And um, the United States is one of those countries. Uh, also one of those countries is Brazil, um, India, you know, these are G20 countries, the biggest economies in the world. And one member of the European Union is actually already in a, an autocracy, Hungary. And so um, that's a very, um, dangerous situation because that creates a kind of geopolitical center of gravity around authoritarianism that will continue to draw nations in. And um, that process of autocratization in the United States rapidly accelerated under Trump, but has been going on for a very long time now. And so what we see happening in Portland, Oregon now, these confrontations with white nationalism is one expression of that process that's underway. It is a process uh, that can be measured in terms of freedom of the press, free expression, the right to protest, the right to vote, the right to run for office, um, the um, a free judiciary, you know, a number of different kinds of components like that that are indicators of democracy. And um, on all of those counts, we are starting to slide in the wrong direction. Um, it appears as though in response to government having become so unresponsive, that people are now starting to go in a far more particularistic direction. So white nationalism being one of those expressions of particularism, but there are a number of others. Um, for example, the unwillingness to compromise, people, increasing numbers of people saying that if they can't get their political agenda through the legitimate political process, then it should be forced through, even with violence. Um, the fact that now the Republican Party in the United States is considered one of the most authoritarian parties in the world. Um, these things are happening. And this white nationalist movement of today has won a place in the Republican Party. Um, you see that in what's happening now in our Congress on the Republican side, and are um, increasingly merging with the white, uh, the Christian nationalist movement or the Christian right, as people have uh, called them. Um, which means that now, right now, white nationalism, which is a largely self-funded movement, has become a part of a broad coalition that's able to move billions of dollars for political action. And so as those coffers open to them, the game could change really dramatically for us. And we have a relatively small window of time in which to act before that kind of thing begins to happen. 
to try to split them and isolate them from those other elements and to expose their agendas and organize against them. So this is a very much more elevated kind of problem than we faced back then. But you know all about this, Eric. Yeah, well, I mean, we're learning some things about this. Take me back because I think one of the interesting pieces around the, the podcast that really resonated with me, Scott, is uh, it starts around uh, this idea. Uh, I was just in, in the 80s, if I can talk, I feel, I feel now like I'm a grandpa looking back, right? Back in the 80s, when you had to walk 20 miles to the record store and back, right? Um, uh-huh. But in the 80s, um, in the late 80s, we were just uh, kids who were uh, trying to get by. We had like a love of music, right? That brought us together. It was that love for music, right? With punk, what, you know, whatever we wanted to call it, then hardcore, right? It was that love of music that kind of gave us a competing identity, right? To the identities around uh, race and, and gender, right? Uh, you know, I don't want to overplay that because it was complicated, uh, but, but it was the setting of this new identity. So for most of us, it wasn't about this larger conversation around democracy, right? It was about, right? It wasn't, it, or, or, or at least we weren't aware of it consciously. We wanted to go to shows. We wanted to be with our friends, right? Which were uh, for some folks, like the, the closest family they had. And uh, folks were being threatened physically and being threatened physically by folks we had seen as part of that extended right identity in some way. Take us to why that was an important, was that an important organizing point in this longer, larger conversation around democracy? Why was a sub a fight within a subculture so critical in that moment? And, and how does that apply today? Wow. That's a big question. That's a big question. This is what I'll give you, Eric. I think you know this about me because you knew me back then. Um, Back then, I didn't know fuck all about, you know, what exactly it was that I should be doing. I just understood that we were being threatened. And it seemed to me that um, the um, fight against these groups that were threatening us was also a soft entry point for many, many people to get involved in anti-racist resistance. And so I figured, you know, this makes the problem really obvious, right? From my perspective at the time, what I saw was, you know, this in the city of Portland was a city that was the, you know, then as now, perhaps the whitest major city in the United States that was primarily democratic, less so then than now, um, but whiter than than now. Um, and that had a kind of self image of being this progressive city. You know, I mean, Portland thought of itself as being a kind of hub of liberalism. Um, Portlandia hadn't happened yet, but there was some of that kind of attitude, um, you know, in the city about um, its sort of own kind of self, uh, sense of self. And um, yet it trailed the country then as now on every major indicator of racial equity. And so it just seemed like a contradiction and that there needed to be something, some way to expose that contradiction to people to help them see the problem. And um, that to me, the fight against white supremacy seemed a way into having that discussion in a context in which it seemed next to impossible to talk about it. 
you know, really next to impossible to talk about it. If you raise issues of race in even the within the progressive community, you would often basically be pushed out as tilting at phantoms, as you know, being on some kind of exotic journey that you know, where you imagine dragons where they don't exist. And so, um, you know, that was kind of part of the impetus for me. And then the other part of the impetus was our scene was under attack. You know, I mean, these guys were messing things up. And um, friends of mine have, were being harmed. And people I knew who were in the scene, who were um, the promoters and the managers and whatnot, were kind of perplexed and beside themselves. They didn't know what to do and they weren't reacting quickly enough. And so it just seemed like doing something, sounding alarm, making it into an emergency would help um, to um, protect that thing that I thought of as part of my identity. You know, I mean, it seemed very important to me. And so it made it as I think um, you taught me to, you know, this uh, a really self-cultural sort of kind of thing. And um, we did, I think, as you pointed out, kind of descend into subculture. You know, we started to batten on the hatches and that made that kind of idea of the subculture got reified in that context in a way that I think might have not been the best thing for us. Um, but the whole time we were fighting a movement that is playing then, uh, played then and is playing now a really critical role in American politics, right? There's this thing in political, you know, policy making circles called the Overton window. It's like, if you think of it as brackets around the legitimate political debate in the legislative bodies of our country, um, that window moves to the right and left depending on, you know, who who's, um, more, has more influence at any given time. The right operates over here outside of this window, right? And by behaving in the outrageous ways that they do, they basically create the space and opportunity for people who are over here, right inside the right-hand side of that bracket, um, to appear reasonable by comparison and to move the window further and further to the right. And um, they have been pulling it in that direction for a good long time now. So that, you know, I mean, think about it. You know, the day after Donald Trump got elected president and people woke up the next morning kind of shell-shocked, um, the number of Republicans who suddenly realized I'm in the wrong party. That the party had gone so far to the right that people we used to think of as moderate Republicans suddenly woke up and recognized that they were independents or Democrats. That's not just a question about how far the Republican party went to the right, but how far the Democratic party went to the right that they could slide right in and feel perfectly at home. Um, that situation um, was also something that over the course of that period of time, I came to understand better and better, and largely as a result of the other people who were in the coalition. People like Stephen Gardner and Jonathan Mazaki and um, a person who identifies himself in the um, podcast as Emshalor. Um, they were much more sophisticated political thinkers than I was at that time. I was just kind of this angry young man, you know. Um, they taught me to think of this in a more political, more intentionally political way. It was, uh, I think about uh, the murder of Mulligata Sarah. I think I was in, uh, I was outside the US when that happened actually. I, I was uh, in France and I remember finding out the, the next day. I remember just the, the, the shock, right? And uh, I remember shock because uh, folks had been kind of talking about, right, warning about this, right? That, I mean, the uh, physical assaults that had been happening uh, outside of the music clubs, right? Um, 
you know, there had been kind of the cycle. And I, I remember when that happened. And, you know, now, you know, now, Scott, we, we, we talk about this, right? We saw it at the time as, as an act, right? That this was this individual act uh, that had happened by uh, folks who had, you know, who we saw as like bullies, right? I don't, I don't even think I had a, a political understanding, uh, except that these were folks who were trying to, to, to harm us, right? And, um, and I think about it now and, you know, now we talk about, you know, it wasn't like white Aryan resistance and East Side white pride uh, were just spreading hate to spread hate. Right. It was uh, an attempt to build political power. Right. It was uh, a practice. And it's interesting to see both how it has mainstreamed. Right. And, and sharpened its language, coded its language. Um, and uh, now we see it in in ways uh, without swastikas. Right. Uh, but with the same goals, right? The exclusion of uh, people in society uh, through physical intimidation and fear. I, I think about it in those days because I, I think about some of the names you brought up. I think about other folks. I often tell folks like, it wasn't a politic though, in, in a way, right? I mean, it was, um, we were anti-racist as we understood it, right? And um, I don't know if it passed anyone's buster today, 30 years later, right? Hopefully we've learned a few things, but, but we saw ourselves as anti-racist. What that meant, if someone had asked me in 1986, 87, even, you know, 91, 92, what did it mean to be anti-racist? My response would have been something akin to, it means no one gets to tell me who my friends are. No one gets to tell my friends that either. That was the level of it. I bring this up because in some ways, you're right, right? We have this romanticized, and this is not to take away. Let's be clear right now. There were some folks who were incredibly, incredibly brave. There were people who were uh, hurt. There were folks who, who were killed through hate crimes and, and other acts. It was a very horrifying uh, moment. But we sometimes romanticize the past, right? What are some of the dangers in... Um, uh, over-romanticizing that period. What are some of the things we think we, we might lose uh, along the way that are important lessons for us to know now? Wow. Well, I always say, you know, nostalgia is a trap. The past looks good to us because we know how the story ends. And so it's sort of, you know, kind of a way of feeling safe, right? Especially when the um, circumstances were very dangerous, which they were for all of us back then. Um, to know you got out of there safely with your skin on even magnifies that uh, kind of the power of nostalgia. But um, I think that mostly is that, you know, the underlying conditions are constantly changing. We live in a really different time now than we did back then. And that we can very easily get trapped into thinking that the kind of tactics and strategies of that time apply easily to the situation we're in now. I would say that they don't necessarily. You know, one of the things that um, is a constant theme throughout the podcast is the uh, um, kind of uh, physical confrontations with um, neo-Nazi skinheads having been one of the key strategies. I think back then that that played a good and a bad role. 
people um, decided that they were no longer just going to get beat up and decided to stand up and defend themselves, I think was a very um, important thing. But um, we now face a movement of far greater sophistication that is much better trained, much better armed, and in a very different context. That movement is baiting us into those kinds of confrontations now. And um, they're baiting us into those confrontations because as you put it, Eric, um, they, are, um, they rely on political theater. And the political theater that creates contributes to the sense of victimization that the, um, their immediate base of support, the angry white man, is feeling. Um, they say we stand for free speech and then we, they see people coming and violently confronting them. That tells the story that they want their base to see played out on a major media. And it also creates a context that then invites state repression. Because you know, what we're really facing here now, right, with these protests and the confrontations that we're seeing happening, is that government's broken. You know, neoliberalism has had a powerful effect on the ability of government to respond to the needs of people. And, um, and the political deadlock that we're in, right, with extreme polarization has also made government terribly unresponsive. And so people are no longer trying to fight for legislative wins and policy wins in the halls of power because they're not getting anywhere. And so that fight is now spilling out into the streets. And um, what the right wants is for that fight to become a fight where people go after one another because that plays to their base and they're better prepared to be in that fight. The secondary effect of that though is when unresponsive government sees this beginning to happen, their interests are threatened and they are likely to react by um, becoming far more repressive in order to be able to control um, what's happening in civil society around these kinds of debates and mass protests. So we need to be really careful not to think that what we're facing now is the same thing we were facing back then and that some of those tactics are necessarily going to work. I think what we need to be doing now is building the broadest coalitions possible and figuring out how to build them um, in a way that uh, clearly articulates that while we may disagree on many things, the majority of us are opposed to the white nationalist agenda, the vast overwhelming majority of us. It's just, we need to learn how to behave like a majority. And that's going to require some compromise and negotiation and a willingness to you know, like live with ambiguity and hold people together in space in a way that um, allows us to create the space for each and every one of us to be involved in the resistance. And so I just think that that's really, really important for us to recognize about this moment as compared to the last one. It is not a situation that's going to benefit us by um, name call, simple name calling or um, through those kinds of confrontations. So I just uh, think that's a caution that people should keep in mind. Whatever people want to do in their private lives, I'm not trying to tell you what you can and can't do. I'm saying about the public expression of resistance, that that public expression has to be one that calls people in and doesn't repel them from um, you know, what, um, what could potentially be a real moment for us. Um, I talked about how autocracies are growing around the world. Well, the other thing that's happened is since, since 2009, the amount of pro-democracy um, mass movements have doubled around the world. They're still not to scale to the um, autocratic takeovers, but they are building. And we need to make space for those movements to begin to grow, to flourish, and to be able to play the role they need to play in protecting our freedoms. 
So, you know, I mean, that's the biggest lesson I take from those days. You know, uh, people often tell me stuff about back then, like, oh, I remember you doing this. I remember you doing that. It's like, yeah, well, you didn't also see all the other stuff I was doing because I didn't show that stuff to the public. But I think of the most heroic thing I did back then was to be willing to work for $400 a month and live in a warehouse squad in order to be involved in the organization. You know, I mean, that was the biggest sacrifice. So um, we should leave that back then and try to figure out what to do now when, Eric, I think of you as playing one of the most critical roles nationally in helping to teach us how to be that majority. When people ask me who they should be supporting now, I say support Eric in the Western States Center. I'm on Team Eric. That's very kind. Well, there are lessons, and this is one of the reasons um, I'm going to plug the podcast uh, again, just in case there are folks who who are listening uh, who, who haven't heard it, phenomenal, phenomenal podcast put, put together called It Did Happen Here, right, which looks at uh, Portland in the uh, 80s and 90s during the, uh, uh, well, not the first wave, but uh, a wave of neo-Nazism and, and white nationalism in Portland and, and how the community responded Lots of, of different stories and, and threads in there. An important part of Portland's history. You know, uh, you know, I was on the board of the Coalition for, for Human Dignity for um, uh, just a few years. You know, I was uh, down in Eugene, Oregon, and with help from Coalition for Human Dignity, before I was on the board, founded uh, with others down there, a group called Communities Against Hate, right? And... Uh, uh, we saw ourselves as a, a sister organization uh, to the Coalition for Human Dignity. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, those, those moments of, of, uh, of success, right? It was, it was the boring work that uh, no one wants to talk about, right? You remember the phone calls and sometimes you had to just write people a letter and, and uh, wait for it to go through the mail and back. I think about the boring work was also the most powerful, right? I, I think about, you know, public events we would do, right? We were, we were mostly, right, uh, subculture kids, not all, but, you know, and, you know, these events would pull in folks across the community, right? Um, uh, 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 and uh, there, was, there was real power in the, the diversity of that community. And that's something, you know, we try to hold to now at Western States Center, as you know, right? We, we think that this is about, um, uh, this is not about a purity moment. And I don't say that in, in, a, in a bad way. What I mean by that is, is just kind of recognizing our humanity, that this is uh, an issue of governance right now. And uh, governance is fundamentally about who we consider to be human beings uh, in a society. And uh, that's the next lesson, right? Besides uh, the need to kind of be diverse in who you talk to and who you try to organize, right? Recognizing uh, uh, people's fundamental uh, humanity. And that's, that's what we were pushing for when we were kids in those punk rock clubs and, you know, um, hanging out, drinking our coffee and uh, trying to figure out how we were going to eat, right? Uh, uh, next. And I think, you know, my sense is, you know, one of the lessons we, we still kind of wrestle with, 
uh, is the fact that uh, there is, you know, be wary of those who say uh, they have the plan, right? Uh, because the truth is, in that moment, most of us, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Scott, I, I don't think we had plans. Things worked out. Uh, <laughs> and they primarily, things worked out when we were expansive, right? When we were generous, when we were outward facing, those things seemed to work out really well. When we would turn inward, right? We would uh, get paranoid, we'd get cut off from, you know, from, from the community, right? Um, uh, our understanding of things would, would get distorted. I've heard from folks, activists uh, in the 60s and 70s who have shared uh, some of that same story. Um, but I'm curious from, from your perspective, um, like to, to, to really hear a little bit, what are lessons that are valid, right? Uh, uh, to this moment and uh, how did we survive that moment? Do we have a plan? And, and if we didn't have a plan, how did things still work out? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, history in a kind of odd little way, you know, that uh, we are created by the context that we're in. And um, sometimes organically, you're just in the right place at the right time and have the right disposition to respond in a way that history requires you to. Um, and um, that's often not something you plan for, as you put it, you know, not something that you're fully conscious of. Um, and as you go through it, history teaches you what to do next. And so, um, you know, I think there's some of that involved in it. It's a kind of iterative way of feeling your way forward through a situation that just requires you to constantly be, re be uh, responding. But um, I can name like any kind of, any number of ridiculous, terrible <laughs> mistakes and um, moments when um, at least I could say I misjudged the moment or misjudged the people I was among in ways that were um, just, you know, anything from dangerous to just outright silly. And so, um, you know, there's also that and we rarely tell those stories when we talk about, you know, our personal histories. Um, because of course we all wanna remember the good stuff. It's um, how you, you know, comfort yourself as you move forward, that you, know, you remind yourself that you are capable, that you can. Um, it's what gives you the confidence to keep taking the risk. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly about that, um, but I can tell you this. At the beginning of that process, I was mostly angry. You know, I was angry of, with, about the racism with which I was treated. I was shocked at the racism I encountered when I moved from Hawaii, which is a multiracial context to Portland, Oregon, which was whitey, white, white back then. And, um, you know, and that, where that white hegemony was so overwhelming. You know, one of the ways that I understand these white rightists, the white nationalists, the Proud Boys and whatnot, one of the ways that I can get a little bit inside of their heads is that when I got to Portland, a white hegemony ruled in a way that was just amazing. It was the hegemony of uh, white liberalism, one that saw no color, that did not understand race. And people of color lived under that kind of liberal tyranny of a huge white majority that believed itself to be actually progressive and inclusive when it was anything but. 
right? So this is not about the virtue of the people. It was just about the reality of the structural relations that people were in at the time. And um, that is exactly the kind of thing that white conservatives are responding to, right? If you live in Portland, um, every single political elected office is blue. Um, there's an overwhelming um, uh, liberal majority. Um, if uh, you're a white conservative male in that context who identifies with the Republican Party, well, for one thing, all of the Republicans who um, want real power become Democrats because they can't win political office. And the ones that are left do the kinds of things that the Multnomah County Republican Party has done, like voting to use three percenters and oath keepers to white nationalist groups as event security to prevent to protect them from the Antifa. Um, and so that becomes one of the ways you start to interpret and understand your position in the world is as a victim in that way. And um, you might not even have anybody to vote on in uh, election in your district, in your legislative district. Statewide, that's true of people who live in rural Oregon where it's very, very red, but um, where we still maintain a majority of Democrats in the state legislature. So the power that you may have in terms of where you can make decisions that are in keeping with your values and at the level of the county, which of course feeds that posse comitatus power of the county, you know, like Bundy Bunch ideology that um, has people rejecting federal authority. So, um, you know, that's kind of the situation. And so I started out just being kind of angry about the racism that I experienced and then started to recognize over time that um, you know, there was another thing at stake, which is that racism is a powerful anti-democratic ideology. It is the thing that divides us from our ability to invest in a robust safety net, in a robust wealth and equitable welfare state. Um, the effects of which then, you know, the austerity that that drives, then creating more and more of the conditions that people interpret through the lens of race that causes us to then disinvest more and more and more, and then to start to see each other as rivals in competition with one another in a way that then, then you know, further invigorates that process. So um, that's something that I learned through this process about the impact that that can have, and why even in a state as white as Oregon, the, uh, with a relatively small number of people of color in it, that um, the, what happens to us is not just important because we should not be harmed and tolerating that kind of harm against any group of people um, a lot, creates a tolerance for that kind of inequity and injustice in general. But um, because that powerful anti-democratic ideology that allows us to do that supports the idea of injustice and hierarchy all around, right? I, you know Ruthie Gilmore, right? Ruthie Gilmore, who's an abolitionist and a great scholar, um, often says that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. So, you know, what she's basically saying is that racism legitimates a kind of permanent hierarchy um, in the context of what's supposed to be a democratic state for the sake of helping capitalism to be able to reproduce itself. And um, so, you know, that idea is powerfully anti-democratic idea. And I think that's something that we're contending with all the time. But, um, you know, Eric, the thing I'm interested in from you is that you are um, right now in the center of a struggle in the Northwest. And I just wonder like, where do you see us winning? What do you see working now? You know, <laughs> um, you actually have to acknowledge you've won something to be able to acknowledge uh, that something might be working, right? And um, 
there's a, a level of, uh, of, uh, I don't, I don't even know what to call it. Like I, I, you know, I call it progressive, uh, uh pessimism. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of where, where I said folks may call it, uh, something else, but you know, there, there's just like a, a level of pessimism right now, uh, where, uh, I often call our social movements now kind of like the Eeyores of, uh, of social movements. And I mean, Eeyore from Winnie, Winnie the Pooh. If you haven't read Winnie the Pooh, you should uh, check it out from the Noma Library, right? Uh, but there's a character named Eeyore uh, who is a donkey uh, who is ever, ever, ever sad and, and dejected uh, about how nothing uh, works out, right? And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's because we, we can't hold nuance. And I'm gonna come back to what I think is actually working, but I wanna set the context. Um, we've lost our ability to imagine. We have been so beaten up by the right in this country that we think it's weak to talk about dreams. I wrote the other day that, uh, We've become so intimidated uh, by the, the authoritarians uh, in this country, uh, folks who oppose democracy, folks who want to promote racism and other forms of bigotry. We've become so intimidated uh, that we're ashamed to say, right, that at the end of the day, the, the world we're trying to create is one where people have more good days than bad days. It's actually not that complicated, right? And um, that's what most of us around the world think about each day, right? And um, I think we've, we've, we've lost our way. You know, for, for those who understand, right, that uh, we still must push, right, for the country we say that that we want to be, for the communities we say we want to be. Uh, you know, a society, I think I often say, uh, I quote an, an old friend of mine, right, where, where everyone can live, love, uh, worship, and work uh, free from fear, right, and, and bigotry. We, we have to push for that world. That, that's the right thing to do. Um, and we need to be urgent about it. We also have to be more humble about how far we've gone and, uh, how far people have brought us, right? There, there's, there's a level of, uh, uh, of arrogance, right? That uh, rejects the fact, you know, that life in 2020, sorry, 2021, America, right? Uh, at least for black people, right? Mostly is better than 1921. And you know, 2021 is a lot better than 1821. Now, I'm not trying to say like we're there, right? That we're sitting in the promised land, right? There's still too much inequality in this country. We have to acknowledge that people struggled to get us to the moment we are now. And we've learned one thing. And if, if you want to know what I think works, right? Uh, I think there's two things that work. The, the first, right, is uh, democracy, right? Black and indigenous people have struggled for democracy in this country for a very, very long time. 
and uh, other folks as well, right? Whether we're talking about immigrants, right? Whether we're talking about refugees, whether we're talking about poor white folks trying to get through their day, right? A lot of folks have struggled for uh, decades to build that democracy. And I think uh, uh, we treat it in, in a way that suggests it's not of our own making, right? And so uh, the, the real thing is, uh, I think you, you, you taught me this in the 90s, democracy actually works when we practice democracy, right? Not vanguardism, right? Not elitism, uh, but actual uh, democracy. And that's the piece, uh, I think it is the sunlight uh, to authoritarianism in here. The, the second piece, right, that no one wants to talk about is uh, what I call racial intimacy, right? Or religious intimacy uh, is actually critical too, right? And it is how we inoculate ourselves against authoritarianism in this moment. But those two things take being really brave, right? And uh, being really courageous and understanding, right? That um, sometimes you sadly find yourself in a moment where uh, you get the win. You're not fighting for the win. And here's the secret, and then you know we'll turn it over because I, I know we have to go to questions. Maybe maybe someone has a question or a thought, um, but I just want to say this, and I'm gonna leave it with provocative thought. What I think works is democratic practice and mobilizing people, lots of people through different ways. We built coalitions in the '90s where you could see Republican farmers sitting next to blue-haired right punk rockers. That's the coalitions. Uh, we need again, and uh, we need real governance that practices democracy. And the third thing we need is it's, uh, it's going to sound like the, the weakest word in the world, uh, but it's time to do away with segregation, right, in the city of Portland, right? Uh, segregation in housing, in uh, employment, in education, transportation, it is killing democracy. Uh, in Portland, Oregon. It is killing democracy in this country. And I'll just leave it with the words of an alt-right activist. Four years ago, I tell this story all the time. He was outside the Blues Festival in Portland, Oregon. He was being harangued by the counter-protester. And Scott, you know that counter-protester with the camera, right? Up in the face of the, of the white nationalist yelling. Well, this one was in the face of this alt-right kid yelling, why are you here? No one wants you here. Mayor doesn't want you here. Counter protesters don't want you here. No one wants you here. Why are you here? And this alt-right activist responded by saying, yeah, I've heard you don't want us here. Uh, but the truth is Portland is shrinking, it, uh, has a shrinking black population by a percentage and whole number. And then he said, so you can say you don't want us here. But the fact of the matter is, is you all are doing something we could never get away with you are disappearing the black population of Portland, Oregon. The, the truth is this, the magic of that podcast uh, and the magic of the 90s was that it taught us to look in the mirror. If we wanna understand how we defeat white nationalism, we have to be courageous enough to understand 
right? That we don't beat it through our own political theater. We don't beat it, right, by somehow trying to out-physically outpower it. Uh, we beat it by building an alternative vision of what Portland and America can be. And that only happens, that only happens to building the power of people so that they can come to a consensus. That's what works in the Pacific Northwest. And when we do that, white nationalists lose. Okay, well, let's make sure we come back to that because I really, really wanna talk about that. I also okay. wanna um, just say hello Powell, whose name I see in the chat, who says Afro and indigenous futurists remind us that we can only create what we imagine. And um, that I think is really important. We need to be wildly imaginative and radically rethink um, the world we're in. And in particular to think about safety because what people, many of us are struggling for is safety. We wanna be able to feel safe in a world that's rapidly changing with technological marvels popping up all around us that are constantly changing the way we understand ourselves and how we relate to others. That and climate change and all of these other things that we're facing, the anxiety that that's producing, we need to radically rethink safety in order to be able to get through this. And that's gonna to have to be a collective exercise. It's time for us to let people ask us questions. Look at who's in the question box, Cecil Prescott. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> Cecil, Cecil was on this Coalition for Human Dignity and who, well, I mean, I got everything from grammar lessons to organizing lessons from Cecil. But um, Cecil says, comment on the changing self-understanding of white evangelicalism. It's morphing mm -hmm. into Christian nationalism and its current relationship to white nationalism, OCA to the Tea Party, to an OCA being the Oregon Citizens Alliance, which is a more traditional evangelical right-wing group, to the Tea Party, to Trumpism. So, so, so Scott, let me, let me set this up. No, 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 no. Uh -uh. that's a hard <laughs> question. And I'm gonna make you answer that. Um, but I do wanna set the context. Uh, one of the things that I, I, you know, I think folks may not be aware about the Coalition for Human Dignity is uh, it, it didn't just research and help communities organize and respond to uh, neo-Nazism, right? It was also working with uh, communities who were responding to attacks on the LGBTQ community. And I also think other work as, as well. So talk a little bit first about some of the areas of, of CHD, help build out the areas and then answer Cecil's, Cecil's question because I'm curious what the answer is. So wait a minute, say that again. What else did the CHD engage in besides uh, its work around uh, the neo-Nazi movement? Well, um, CHD also took on the Oregon Citizens Alliance, which is a group that Cecil just referenced in his question. The Oregon Citizens Alliance being an evangelical right-wing organization that um, sponsored ballot measure eight in 1988 that rolled back uh, Governor Neil Goldschmidt's executive order banning discrimination against LGBTQ people in public employment. And then in 1992 presented us with another ballot measure called ballot measure nine, and then subsequently hit the ballot a number of other times on LGBTQ questions and questions of abortion um, or abortion access. Um, so um, we did some research into the Oregon Citizens Alliance. Uh, Steve Gardner, who is on the podcast, authored something called Rolling Back Civil Rights, which is a very important report on the Oregon Citizens Alliance that helped to contextualize who they were, what they were doing, and what they might do. 
And um, that was used by the campaign. I went to the campaign and was the director of statewide development on that campaign staff. So I know we use that document. And, um, you know, so that was part of what we, you know, understood to be the assault that we were facing. Um, that, um, and, and that evangelical right-wing movement did have a kind of an underarm, underarm, and, uh, underarm underground, and what you might call a, a paramilitary wing, you know. And so, um, yeah, so we did that as well. I think that that was really important work. But um, yeah, so you know that that happened too. There was um, a lot of organizing around it, and during that campaign year, CHC played a pretty critical role. They published a little newspaper about the Oregon Citizens Alliance that got circulated through another organization called the Rural Organizing Project, also still in existence. People should look that up online. Rural Organizing Project. They do terrific work in rural Oregon. I think that that um, newspaper had a really good role, uh, played a really good role in helping to consolidate a base of resistance that was informed about the OCA and what it intended to do in a lot of rural communities around the state. That's helpful. What other questions do we see up there? Oh, talk, talk a little bit about, uh, talk what is Christian nationalism? So now I'm gonna ask Cecil's question. What, you know, what is this term Christian nationalism? And uh, how does it relate to the Tea Party? How does it relate to, to white nationalism? Well, I mean, you know, we are faced with a Christian right-wing movement that has a number of different expressions, one of which is a kind of theocratic um, agenda. And then uh, there's Christian nationalism, which is related, but slightly um, different. And um, Christian nationalism is basically the religious expression of white nationalism, essentially. Um, the notion that um, we need to basically take over and uh, the nation and create a kind of welcome mat for the second coming of Jesus so that when he returns, um, you know, we will have created the ecclesia on earth and that begins here at home. But um, the Christian nationalist movement has evolved a lot since those old days. Um, but, you know, it, I think it helps to understand where they started, right? So, um, you know, in the... Um, latter part of the 20th century, um, the biggest social movement in the United States was the born and again evangelical Christian movement. That born again movement um, had tremendous momentum and it was um, bringing people to the Christian community, but many of whom were not actually going into the institutional Protestant church in America. Um, they were being brought to the Christian community through television, evan uh, you know, evangelical television and radio. And so um, they basically went to church at home. And um, the elites of the Republican right, um, the neoliberal elites in particular, people like Phyllis Schlafly, for instance, um, saw that as an opportunity because at the time the Republican party was really on the, in, in the margins of national politics. They had won very few elections in a number of decades. And so um, the Republicans saw this as an opportunity to create a popular front. And so they basically, intervened into the, in that community and started to help to build a kind of political base for a family values agenda that they believed would be able to divide um, the liberal opposition to Republican politics and also create the kind of ground troops they needed in order to move their agenda. And so um, that happened over a number of decades. Um, by 1980, it was key to the election of Ronald Reagan and um, Ronald Reagan, who was um, elected by the Coalition on Revival, which was a group of different kinds of Christian right-wing organizations that included things like 
um, Concerned Women for America, which at the time was the largest women's organization in the United States. Um, they were able to kind of make a change within the Christian community that caused um, evangelical Christians or a big faction of them, particularly white evangelical Christians, to start to see their role in the world, not as simply cultivating a relationship with Jesus, personal relationship with Jesus and a faith relationship with, the, uh, with Christianity, but um, to think of themselves as having to be political actors in order to prove their relationship. They needed to be able to change the world in order to invite Christianity to become the dominant ideology of the United States and the world. And so it politicized them and mobilized them in a way that they hadn't been mobilized before. And that had the impact that we've seen over the last many decades. Lately, um, they're going in a much more radical direction. And, um, you know, when we think about, for example, this um, pandemic we've just been through, and that's one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, right? They hear the sound of those little hoofs on the horizon and are reacting. And so we're likely to see them rise um, to greater and greater levels of activity. But uh, very importantly, we should know that the Christian um, right, the Christian nationalist movement, were critical to the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And so when you think about the vulgar, creepy, anti-Christian ideology of Donald Trump, the fact that the Christian nationalist movement in the United States played the kingmaker role in that 2016 election on his behalf and regard him as a godly man is an indication of the direction it's going in. And um, that direction is one that we should be very, very wary of. It um, is really dangerous and it is part of the process of, um, you know, it sets up the process in which the Christian right and the white um, nationalist movement appear to be increasingly merging. So that's my answer. So that's a good answer. And see, so it's, I'm glad you answered that one. Tell me this, what kind of tactics uh, did CHD engage in as a community organization? And why were those tactics important to experiment with? And what do you think would be important tactics now to experiment with? Wow. Eric, you are the ultimate experimenter in that you're asking me that question. You should answer. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer. <laughs> I'm curious. Back then, I would say there were two things that were critical for now, right? One okay. was that as the neo-Nazi movement started to um, recruit people in the alternative music scene, this kind of uh, first generation or maybe this one and a half generation of white young people who would be less successful than their parents were before them and were experiencing extraordinary um, kind of entitlement angst and alienation as a result of it. Um, the um, CHD formed an alliance with anti-racist action in Portland, which is a youth anti-racist movement that was brooded mainly in the punk scene. And with what was then emerging skinheads against racial prejudice, which, were, which was another faction within that scene in order to um, help them to compete with the neo-Nazi movement for base in that context. And so we help people who are culturally relevant and capable of communicating with those people who in fact were already engaging them. And, um, uh, you know, in order for them to be able to compete effectively for those who are the most vulnerable to right-wing recruitment, to neo-Nazi recruitment. And that had a really big impact. Those kids played, well, kids, you know, they weren't all kids at the time, but some of them were, but um, played a really critical role. They were really heroic. They put their bodies on the line and played a really important role in that work. And um, so 
that was one of the key strategies. But there was another one, you know, someone, I, I, you know, uh, referenced um, in the um, podcast, what we then called the March for Dignity and Diversity, which happened the year that Tom Metzger was sued by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which played a really important role, I think. Um, that may be a controversial thing to some people, but I think they played a critical and positive role by bankrupting Tom Metzger, who was the head of a group called the White Aryan Resistance, um, for his role in helping to instigate the violence that led to the murder of Mulugeta Sarah. So um, that, um, though, you know, event became the context in which the CHD got involved in organizing something called the October 7th Committee that right around what we used to back then called Columbus Day, <laughs> um, now we call Indigenous Peoples Day, um, we would uh, march for dignity and diversity that mobilized many, many, many people in the community. It was the largest civil rights march and rally in the Pacific Northwest up until that time. And um, that march was one that reached really far into the community. We built the broadest coalition possible in order to mobilize people to commemorate the life of Mulugeta Sarah and to express their resistance to neo-Nazi organizing in the city. And so by mobilizing a massive number of people, we were able to demonstrate that the majority across many differences that the right would like to um, wedge us apart according to, um, people were opposed and willing to step up and express that opposition, even when um, the Portland police warned the community that neo-Nazis were planning violence against us and said that the event would end in tragedy. Nonetheless, thousands turned out and walked with us and um, rallied with us in order to express their opposition. That was really important. That march also created the context in which it was possible for city leaders who up until that time were reticent to get involved in this fight to pivot to the right side and to be able to play the heroic role of joining the march, endorsing it and stepping up in front and putting their bodies on the line as well. So when Mayor Clark showed up and other people uh, who were in city leadership showed up, that made a big, big difference. People like Vera Katz was then in the state legislature you know, all of these people were able to, in that context, finally find themselves a voice and become part of that work. Um, whereas the work we were doing in the alternative music scene, of course, offered them no opportunity to do that as lawmakers. That other march, uh, that march actually created that opportunity. So it was really, really important. So those are very different tactics, but those two tactics, I think, were pretty successful. And and to, to follow this just, just a little bit, because I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, what did it take um, to build that kind of large coalition? What were some of the important components to be able to build that kind of broad base? <laughs> I wish I could say I played the most positive role in that process, but I'm not sure I always did. Um, could it have been bigger? Could it have been a bigger mobilization, Scott? Yeah, it could have been. I think it could have been an even bigger mobilization, though I will say this, the front line of that march included the Lesbian Community Project, the Black United Front, the American Sur Friends Service Committee, members of the JACL, the Japanese American Citizens League, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of the Farm Workers um, Union. You know, I mean, that's how broadly diverse- So Scott, hang on, hang on. Let, me, let me get this right, because you know, I just, I wanna make sure uh, what you're saying is, that a uh, group of like punk rockers, street kids, 
right, and young radicals were able to organize state elected officials, city elected officials uh, to lead a mass mobilization march against hate. That's right. And people like Kathleen Mm -hmm. Scott, who's still in the community, Mike Lindbergh, who was on the city council at the time, also played critical roles. So did Art Alexander, who worked for Mike Lindbergh um, in the city. Um, Those people helped to play a critical role because they helped us to see city government as something other than our enemy. Because as young radicals, we really did see the city often as enemies. That made a big, big difference because, of course, what we needed to do was close the gap between government and people in struggle. And what we were doing instead often was to widen that gap. Um, But um, so, yeah, that was really important. But like I was saying, you know, like it was the first time those people I saw standing together in public, in private. People didn't have problems with each other, you know. I mean, the communities of color leadership did not have a problem with lesbians, but that wasn't a thing that we were representing in public. And so it was one of the first times I saw that come together. It was really moving to see it. But we could have built a broader coalition. We could have reached out even further. We could have got more you know, mainstream um, Oregonians to take part. But um, I think that you know, we drew a line in a pretty radical place. So, you know, that was good and bad because, of course, it was a line that um, then, you know, we saw the largest number of people ever in a protest get behind against Native genocide, for racial equality, against homophobia and gender violence. You know, I mean, we, we really rolled out an agenda there. But looky, looky, Jeff Malakowski is in the queue and Jeff Malakowski should be acknowledged for having played a very critical role as well because he was back then the executive director of your organization, Eric, the Western State Center. Founder, founder. And the Western State Center was an incubator of the Coalition for Human Dignity. They um, like took us kids and turned them into adults. So um, that was really- And and basic right to Oregon, is that right? Well, basic right- Through the Oregon- through the Oregon Democracy Project, right? I'll find out. Someone's going to write me a letter and tell me. Someone, yeah. someone will get me. Someone will get me straight on that. Uh, on that one, because I'm curious. Um, talk about the origins, the timeline of these different organizations. Like how broad uh, were like some of these coalitions? Well, um, so basically, Oregon started out as something called Support Our Communities Political Action Committee, which came out of a campaign against an anti-LGBTQ ballot measure in, I think, 1994. And so, um, you know, it was around that time that finally the LGBTQ community got it together and decided that we were being attacked so often we needed a statewide organization to protect us. And um, Basic Rights Oregon was the ultimate articulation of that process. Um, and they are a model for the country. People should, who are looking for a political organization that um, protects the rights of LGBTQ people, look them up online. Um, they do incredibly good work. But um, what Jeff is asking that I think is, is useful is he said, interesting you mentioned democracy as a solution since right now there's a determined assault on democratic rule itself, defensive minority rule, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, and I want to um, actually address that question. Yeah, can I, can I, can I, before you address it, Scott, can I just add to that really quickly? Uh-huh. Um, I think this is a pro tip. I don't know, folks may disagree. Um, pro tip, right? 
when folks who say they want to engage in a genocide of three quarters of the world's population, right, and uh, want to rid all people of color and immigrants and Jews uh, uh, from the country through uh, physical intimidation and harassment, uh, when they tell you they don't like democracy, maybe we want to take a different look at it. Maybe we not want to be so quick uh, uh, um, uh, uh, to disregard uh, uh, democracy and its practice. Am I wrong? Go ahead, a answer Jeff's question, but I, I'm, I'm just curious. Pro tip, pro tip. I agree with you. I think Astra Taylor has written a book called um, something about democracy, <laughs> basically saying that we will miss it when it's gone, right? You may not be so sure about it, but we'll miss it when it's gone. You look her name up in your bookstore browser, Astra Taylor. It's great read, but um, I, I think, get it from Pals. I mean, but sorry, uh, or an independent uh, bookstore. Pals. But um, the love. <laughs> the thing is that you know people are saying that um, democracy is being rejected around the world. I argue that people aren't rejecting small d democracy; they're rejecting the basically BS that has substituted for small d democracy around the world all of, these, all of this time. And um, as um, that um, the ability to hold people together in, um, in the world around the, or in the United States around the American dream, which seemed much realer to people and something that crosses class and race, you know, some belief to one degree or another that, you know, the American dream is possible, that carrot gets pulled. And the treadmill you're on, the little rat race you're in, starts to feel like some serious crap, right? And um, so, you know, some combination of that process is what people are rejecting. Um, they're rejecting in the United States, the idea of nationality on one side, because they say that the demographic change is corroding the idea of nationality, which they think is a white construct, right? Um, and on the other side, because nationality has never really included us. Um, democracy requires a constituent we. And um, the constituent we that has been imposed upon us is only one that we have been able to continue to hold in place through coercion. Because too many of us have been excluded from it. Too many of us have viewed being part of it as merely an act of consent or of a concession, as opposed to something we have embraced. And as the ability of the center to hold us there has weakened over time, people are now rejecting it. And so I think, you know, democracy is the solution, but the democracy that we have is something we need to protect in order to fight again another day for something much, much better, more inclusive, and more wholly satisfying to people. You know, we need real pluralism. We need an equitable democracy. Um, and I, I would argue that what we need to do is build democracy from the ground up as a local project in places like Portland, Oregon. That project has to be a feminist project because democracy cannot just be in the public sphere, but in the private sphere in order to be durable, in order to be able to endure the winds of um, you know, climate change and all the disasters that we may face in the near future. And um, that democracy needs to be one that is um, something that we recreate as we go through it, as an iterative process of negotiation. And it has to be one that's identity forward. 
we need to be able to acknowledge race. We need to be able to acknowledge gender and sexuality, gender identity, all of the differences in that process because they're real. And we need a, a constituent breed that can hold us together in which people feel whole because that's what makes that durable. And we need to build it from the ground up and it needs to reach for local governance. It needs to reach for the city government and needs to try to scale up from there. And so, um, you know, I think that that's one of the things that we need to do in order to claim this moment. The analogy I like to use with people is of a kind of managed forest, you know, that um, what people, what white settlers created in the United States is kind of a managed forest in which the noxious elements, the right wing that with their anti-democratic ideas are a key element. And um, so, you know, because they're native to that forest is a difficult place for those of us who have come here by hook or by crook um, to, or were already here to um, thrive in that forest. But um, that forest is what we're in. And so we need to try to figure out how to contain those noxious elements through monitoring and reporting, through some weeding and to, um, through inoculation campaigns that keep us from eating the poison fruit or carrying the seeds around and spreading them around the forest in ways that would actually help to encourage that, uh, those noxious elements to take over. At times like now when they're surging, we need to have people standing on the front line vigilant and letting us know that it's happening so we can be aware of it. But we also need to be investing in the best elements of the forest, the parts of it so, that are- Scott, I'm only, I'm looking at the time. I know we got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to say really quickly, when we think about that, one of the things I would leave folks with is, is, is to remember, right? Um, it took literally a, a city and it took a state and it, it took a region uh, to take on the white nationalist movement. It wasn't just in Portland, right? It was in places like Coeur d'Alene, Casper, Wyoming, right? It was, uh, and it wasn't uh, just a left program in this, right? Uh, it was a broad political spectrum of folks who may not have agreed on anything, except for the fact that neo-Nazism wasn't the answer to the problems that, that faced us. And um, it was value-based, right? It doesn't mean that there weren't folks with ideology, but there were folks who, uh, who had no ideology, but had values and uh, space was made for those individuals. And it was folks who, who uh, maybe did something once a month. And it was folks who uh, lived in, uh, the warehouse on $400 a month. And so, so just to say to folks, you know, think big and uh, take yourself seriously uh, in this moment. You know, uh, I used to play a game when I was a kid called uh, If I Were. And uh, Scott, you know this, I, I've told you about this, right? We'd sit, you know, it was August, you know, school was, you know, school hadn't started. We were out of things to do. We had no money, right? So we would just say, we play this game. If I were, if I were in the lion's cage and the lion got in, here's what I would do. We'd argue about what we would do. And uh, the question that would come up every summer is, if I were in the midst of the 1960 civil rights movement, here's what I would do. We would argue as kids, right? We were full of bravado about what we would or wouldn't put up with. We didn't understand the choiceless choices of our parents who, like lived under Jim Crow. And uh, that question has always haunted me, what would I have done? And I hope that question haunts everyone listening today. But the truth is, whatever it is you would, do, you would have done in the 1960s, 
is what you will do when you get off this program today. Make it count. Remember what Audre Lorde said, you do not disassemble the master's house with the master's tool. White supremacy and white nationalism have been built off of 500 years of violence. We know what that looks like. We know where that leads. It is time for a new vision that is an alternative to white supremacist violence. And quite frankly, I don't think we get there through violence, but that is my take. That is what I learned. I hope folks get a chance to to listen to the podcast that it did happen here, podcast.com. Give it your own listen. Let us know what you think. Scott, appreciate you. Multnomah County Library. I love you. Thank you for helping me find that book that I read in sixth grade and forgot the name of, and somehow you still tracked it down. Support your county library, right? Scott, always a pleasure, my friend. Good night.